morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. Somebody has absconded with the passage for our Bible text this morning. Uh, Thank you, Tom. (laughs) You thought you were going to get out of it, but um, no, here we are. So we are all good this morning. Um, Kids, if you are going to the kids' lesson, you can be dismissed to the back lobby um, as we get started. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 10. Uh, this morning as we continue our way through this series that we've entitled Follow the King. Now this morning, I just want to prepare us. We're going to hear some very difficult words this morning from Jesus. Okay, This morning we, we find ourselves in a difficult passage and some difficult words from him and we shouldn't and we, we can't avoid it. We've recently heard as we've worked our way through Mark that, that Jesus calls us to take up our cross, and to follow him. And this morning, we're, we're, we're called to that taking up of our cross in the context of relationships in our life. And in particular, Jesus is going to very clearly share his opinion, the opinion that really matters, the opinion of God himself when it comes to the subject of divorce. Um, for some of you, these will be very difficult words to hear. Uh, Because you've been through a divorce or you've been through multiple divorces. For others of you, you may be considering it. It may just be a fleeting thought in your mind, but it may still be there. I would encourage you, will you you listen this morning to your Savior and, and will you follow him today? Others of you are happily married or at least mostly happily married, if, if that's a thing. Um, I would encourage you, we all need to hear hear Jesus this morning, and we all need to be watchful because as Peter says, the adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who to destroy. Others of you aren't married at all. Uh, Maybe you're singles, you're um, kids joining us this morning. You might think this has nothing to do with you now, but it does. It affects all of your relationships from here on out and the way you interact with others, particularly those of the opposite sex. And then there are others here this morning who are widows or widowers, and to you my heart breaks for you. But I hope that as we work through the passage, you will ultimately, like us all and like we all need to be, that you will be pointed to Jesus, I pray. So let's look to the text, Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they say, They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house... The disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you today. We have before us difficult words, hard words, hard words for many of us to hear. Oh, would you help us through it all to see Jesus? 
to be reminded of the incredible redemption that comes through him and in his blood. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's that famous line from the return of the Jedi in the midst of the Battle of Endor. It's become a bit of a meme in our day that we see over and over. Many of you know what I'm about to say. It's Admiral Akbar. And what does Admiral Akbar say? But it's a trap. When the Pharisees come to Jesus, it's so often a trap. And what we see this morning, they are trying to trap him. Don't miss it. Jesus, he's, he's continuing on his journey, actually his journey that's towards Jerusalem. And he's moved into this new area, area actually where John the Baptist ministered previously. And it's in this context that we see verse 2. We see them coming and asking Jesus a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And this is, don't mistake it, it's a trap. Okay, and there's two traps here. There's the trap of Herod, and there's also kind of a theological trap. Now, the trap of Herod is this. Remember, why did John the Baptist's head get cut off? But because he had criticized Herod and his marriage. Now, don't miss it. Jesus has entered back into that territory, territory ruled over by Herod. And don't think the Pharisees aren't asking this, thinking, hoping that Jesus might say something that would offend Herod and might just end up with Jesus' head on a platter, okay? But at the same time, it is that. It's also a theological trap. In that day, there was a big theological controversy over when you could get divorced. And where they went was Deuteronomy chapter 24. We won't read it all, but I want to read a bit of verse 1, and this is what Moses says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand. And the controversy of that day was over what does that word indecency mean? What indecency would allow for a divorce? That was the question. And there were kind of two schools. There was one that was the conservative school that that basically said that the only thing, the only indecency that would justify divorce was adultery. Sexual immorality, infidelity would be the only thing. But there was another school, a school that was much more popular amongst the people, as we can imagine, a more liberal school, that basically said that any act that displeases the husband was grounds for divorce. Okay? Literally to the point, if you, if you look at the rabbis of the day, literally they said, even if she burned the food, that that was indecent enough. We laugh, but just think of how sad that is, that that was given as a reason. So Jesus finds himself in the midst of this trap. His answer could displease Herod, right? His answer could displease the public who largely embrace this idea that we can go, we can get divorced for any old reason. It could, or if he took that more liberal view, the Pharisees would immediately pounce, oh, you don't take Moses very seriously, do you? You see, it seemed like there was no right answer before him. So what does Jesus do? He does what he does so often. Verse 3, he asks a question. What did Moses command you? And the answer is, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus, and don't miss this, he drops a bombshell 
into the situation. He drops a bombshell in the midst of it. Verse 5, how does Jesus answer? He says it's because of your hardness of heart he wrote this command. What Jesus is saying here is that the commandment was given by Moses not because divorce was approved of, but because your heart is so hard. Okay? You see, divorce is never a good thing. This is never God's desire for marriage. Moses' writing of these words, they were a concession to sinful people. Okay? They were a concession to sinful people. But don't miss, they're also a protection for women of the day. You see, part of what that command of Moses, it, it forced the man to hand over a certificate of divorce and therefore protected a woman so that she could potentially go and get remarried. Otherwise, she was out and left in the cold. It is, at the end of the day, it's a recognition that we live in a messy world today. A messy world that's filled with sin, where sin is crouching at the door. Okay, and so Jesus, in a sense, I think, is saying there's, there's two kingdoms in this world. We've kind of talked about this before. There's the kingdom of self, Jesus says, and then there's my kingdom. And they can't coexist with one another. We've already heard in the passage in earlier in Mark, Jesus called the people to his kingdom. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That call to come be a part of my kingdom. And yet we go on living in our kingdom of self, don't we? In our world of our own delusion where, where we think this world is really all about me. It's all about my happiness. It's all about my well-being. And so many have bought into this lie when it comes to marriage. A lie that, don't miss it, was embraced back in Moses' day. It was embraced in Jesus' day. This isn't a new lie that the world is telling us today and where we find ourselves today. A lie that says it's really all about me. It's all about my happiness and if I'm no longer happy, if I no longer feel in love, then marriage becomes disposable. Now, many of you here today, you would immediately you hear me say that, and you'd say, well, no way, no way do, what, would I believe that? I don't m- believe that marriage is disposable. And unfortunately, I've seen far too many people in my office over the years who a couple of years before would have said that very thing. But then they find themselves in my office and, and, and they're saying, I don't feel in love with her or with him anymore. And then pleading with the other, oh, it would be better for us. We'd, we'd be so much happier if we went our separate ways. Our kids would be so much happier. Everything would be so much better. You see, when, when people, when we... When we find ourselves in the messiness of this world, what, we, what do we tend to do? We, we tend to go around starting to justify ourselves, trying to figure out making what we want to do right in our own mind. We even begin to use Scripture to begin to justify our actions, even as that liberal school did that we talked about a moment ago that, that took indecency and then began to spin it so that it could just mean anything we want it to mean, making ourselves the king and the queen of our own kingdom, Right? And it leaves it up to us to decide what's right and what's wrong. Whether we should go to the left or the right. And to all of us who are gathered here this morning, Jesus bids us. He bids you to come and follow him. 
take up your cross and follow him. Not, not follow our own whims. Not following your own passions. And so, I want to look a little bit more in a few minutes of, of Jesus' call to, to follow him. But first, I think there's a few really important things that we need to say about divorce and remarriage before we move on. You'll see Jesus even approaches this idea of remarriage in verse 10. What does he say? He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is very hard to hear, isn't it? These are very hard words. Jesus seems to give no loopholes. He seems to give no way out. He seems to give no grounds and We need to say, though, that just because there are no grounds here in this passage, that doesn't mean that grounds do not exist. It just means that when Jesus is saying this, he's assuming those grounds. And so in Scripture, we have biblical, what we would say are biblical grounds for divorce. That doesn't mean that divorce, whenever it happens, it's not the result and the consequences of sin, but that one can divorce another in certain situations and that act of divorce not be sinful. Okay, and what, what are those biblical grounds for divorce? The first we see in Matthew 5 and 19, and that's sexual immorality. That adultery can, can be a reason why one can rightfully seek a divorce from another. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, we see that willful desertion of another. When, when an unbeliever le- leaves a believing spouse, that they are free to divorce, and even in that context, we might say by implication that something like spousal abuse would go to the place of, of an act so heinous that you're deserting the other. Now, even as we begin to walk down that line, I want to caution us for a moment. Because there, I just began to read a bit into Scripture, right, and seeking out implications. And we need to be careful there because it is our tendency, as we mentioned earlier, to do what but read our situation, our feelings into Scripture and begin to say that my situation is tantamount to that. This is why, I think, in these kind of situations, we need the church. And we we, we need the, the elders of the church to help and assist you and come alongside you in the midst of this and help find your way. You need somebody to speak truth to you amidst that messy, messy moment and help you to figure your way through it. So in the same way, with there are certain biblical grounds why one might seek divorce, there are then certain biblical grounds why one might be able to be remarried. Okay? Because Jesus speaks very strongly about it in our passage, right? That, that if you divorce unbiblically, what? Remarriage is not an option for you. Okay, but there are biblical grounds, and and that would be if you had biblical grounds for divorce, then you can get remarried. But if you find yourself in an unbiblical divorce, unfortunately you cannot. Unless that other spouse marries, gets remarried, then you would be freed up if that other spouse dies. But unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of room for, for, for other options. And I understand that this may be a difficult, <laughs> difficult truth to hear this morning. For many of you who, who, have, who have been divorced and maybe divorced unbiblically, and I would encourage you that your church and your elders are here to, to come around you in the midst of that and, and to help you through those incredibly difficult waters. At the same time, I think we also need to say this, and 
understand it because some of you may have even find yourself remarried after an unbiblical divorce and maybe you shouldn't have got remarried and I think we need to say this very clearly that a remarriage is a real marriage. Okay? Even if you, if you remarried and by doing so you, you, you committed adultery in that act of getting remarried, that doesn't mean that that new marriage is not a real new marriage. And in fact, that, that new marriage has completely dissolved any f- former marriage that took place. It's not as though you are now living in some continual state of adultery. That's not what Jesus means in our passage this morning. But that by remarrying, in that act of remarrying, you did commit adultery. Now, some of you may think, well, doesn't that then kind of give us a little bit of get-out-of-jail-free card? I mean, if you think about it a bit, well, you know, if I can, if I get remarried and then that solves the whole, and now I, now I have to be remarried to this new person, can I, even if I had an unbiblical divorce, can I just go get remarried and then I can repent later? To do so is dangerous. Not because it's an unforgivable sin but because of what it says about your heart. In Romans, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what does he say? By no means. How can he, how can we who who died to sin still live in it? Do you hear what he's calling us to? If If you begin to think in that way, there's something wrong. There's something very wrong going on in you. Now, Having said all of this, I, th- these are some very hard truths to hear, I understand. And I will also say, and it needs to be said, there, there's gray in the midst of all of this in trying to discern and figure out in specific situations. There's so many details and facts, and I can't bring all that in, and I can't just tell you one way or another right here from the pulpit this morning. But at the same time, your, your church, your elders, your session are willing to walk through these Depths with you to help you to better understand where things are for you. But I also want to offer some pastoral counsel to us all. Some of you are saying, well, it doesn't really apply to me. This isn't my path. But we're, we're all in here affected by divorce in one way or another. We all have those opportunities. We, we have conversations with those we love, families and friends. And, and sometimes we can be so tempted to buy the lie of the world because we so want whoever it is in our life to be happy. Would you hear the words that we're talking about this morning? Would you counsel and encourage your friends, your loved ones? Now, there's others in here this morning who may be saying in your mind, well, I'm kind of thinking about it, or at least it's been a a fleeting thought. I encourage you to come talk to us. Talk to Peter or myself. Come talk to the elders. Please don't wait to get help, okay? I will say it is never too late to get help, okay? You should never say, well, it's gotten so bad, it's, it's impossible now. It's never impossible. But it gets so, so much more difficult. Will you get help now? You, you need help from your, your church in the midst of your messiness, in the midst of your messy moments. We, we try to figure it out, and we need wise counsel coming in and speaking to us instead of us trying to make things fit. Now, for others of you, you've already done it, and you may be sitting here full of guilt this morning. To you, I want to share some words from another pastor in our denomination, Kevin DeYoung. This is what he says. To those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, to, to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be, run to the cross. 
It's not a light thing to tear asunder what God joined together. It is no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light and it is not small. Divorce is not, please hear this, not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. The contrition must be real. The omission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. But a broken heart and a contrite spirit, the Lord will never deny. Run to God. Plead with God. Know His adopting love. Experience again His justifying free grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Know the truth of the gospel to you, even amidst this difficult news. And and if you are divorced, uh, I want to also add, I want you to know that regardless of the grounds, regardless of the reasons, we want Fair Hill Church to be a safe place for you, a place to be loved and encouraged and, and discipled. You do not need to come here and wear a scarlet D upon your chest. We want to care for you. We want to come alongside you and minister to you. Now, we spent a lot of time there, but I want to spend the last bit of our time focusing on what I think in some ways is Jesus' bigger focus in this passage, the place that he's really trying to, to point us to. You see, we can get so fixated like the Pharisees do on where are the lines, you know, how can I make sure I'm not stepping over the line? Or, or how can I get as close to a line as, as possible? And Jesus wants to point us in a completely different direction this morning and a completely different way of thinking as he holds up marriage as this beautiful thing, this thing that has been beautiful from the very beginning. Look at what he said in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, from the very beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. With these words, Jesus is saying something incredibly profound. Okay, He's telling the Pharisees that your, your real problem is not trying to figure out when divorce is permissible. Your real problem is that you've totally missed God's heart for marriage. You, you don't understand the original foundations of marriage foundations, get this, that are not wrapped in the passions of men and women. That's where we often think marriage lies and the foundation of marriage lies in our passions. But instead, the foundation, as Jesus tells us, is rooted in God himself and his passions. You see, to fully understand what Jesus has been talking about, to understand why he has such a high view of marriage, you have to go back to the very beginning. And what do we see in the very beginning? But God made them male and female with with equal dignity, both created in his image to multiply, to fill the earth, to rule over it. He created us purposefully. And purposefully to be united to one another, he intentionally created us male and female equally able to access God through Jesus Christ. Yes, with distinct roles and functions, he he created us to, to come together in this beautiful thing of marriage. Jesus continues saying what? Therefore, what shall happen? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God has a very unique design for marriage, doesn't he? 
It is, as Jesus says, to be between one man and one woman, and this was to be from the very beginning. I appreciate how Dale Bruner, one commentator, puts it. He says this. He says, Jesus' phrase here means that in God's ordinary plan, there has never been any other will for sexual life from the very beginning than the creation of one man for one woman indissoluble heterosexual marriage, then is not a novelty in Jesus' teaching, a sudden spasm of legalism. Did you catch that? You know, we might be criticized for being legalistic. We might be criticized for for being backward, thinking that that, the whole idea that somehow holding, we're, we're being backward and legalistic by holding to the biblical principles of marriage, of sexuality, of gender, But as we gather this morning, we we should be encouraged. We aren't doing so out of legalism, out of spasms of legalism. We are doing so because we're following a gracious and merciful God. We're doing so because we're choosing to follow Jesus. We're choosing to follow our Savior and what He has told us, the one who has purchased our souls, the one who has died for us, who, who gave everything for us, who spilt His blood for us, and He bids us come and follow Him. That's what we're doing. We're following Jesus and trusting that his ways are far above ours and that even today, even in the midst of our society and everything going on, he still knows what is best for you and I. We we also see here in this little bit that a man shall leave his father and mother, we're reminded, and this shouldn't be a news flash for any of the parents in here this morning, but your children are going to leave. And what Jesus, I think, is telling us is the priority that marriage is to have. That the, the marriage has priority over all human relationships. Over relationships with your kids, relationships with your parents. And I know it's a real struggle. As, as, as a father of young children, I, I know how hard it can be that, that the days are so demanding. At the end of the day, you're totally spent, and then we just give our leftovers to our spouse. And it should not be so. Jesus then mentioned something that's mind-boggling. But I think it's crucial for us to grasp this morning. What does he say? And it's crucial to understanding his high, high view of marriage. He says, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. We we see him talk here about this oneness, this this covenantal relationship that marriage is intended to be. That literally, that two individuals, two equals come together and and they're fused together. They, They become one. When I do premarital counseling, I always at some point ask this question. What changes when you say those vows and are officially pronounced man and wife. So they usually sit there, they think for a moment, and typically they, they go straight to, well, you know, there's some things that we're allowed to do now that we weren't really allowed to do before, or at least shouldn't have done before, right? And, you know, at the end of the night, one of us, you know, we don't have to go home anymore. You know, that's where the mind goes. That's where they begin to think. And I try to help them to understand that our answer should be far, far deeper than that. And actually even mysterious in a way that the two at that moment have become one. 
Two people united in goals, united in faith, united in in knowledge, in their hopes, in their hearts, united in everything, united as they move forward in life. They should no longer be two minds thinking apart, but learn to become one-minded as they approach life. It is two people united together in pursuit of Jesus. Ultimately, it should be. That is the intent. And even as I hear those words, I'm, I'm reminded of my own failings, my own struggle to, to truly love Adrian as, as Christ has loved the church and that incredibly high calling that I have to, to show that kind of love. And our problem, our problem is kind of going back to those two kingdom things that we mentioned a few minutes ago because so often we live in the kingdom of self instead of Jesus' kingdom, right? So that, so that even in our marriages... A place that is supposed to be filled with what? Selfless love. That's what should be a picture of our marriage. That's our personal responsibility in marriage. Selfless love. To show a love, regardless of our spouse, regardless of how they act, regardless of who they are, to show to them the kind of love that Christ has shown to us. But so often our our marriages, our relationships are filled and fueled with what? Selfish love, right? A selfish love that loves only to get love in return. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. If you do X for me, I'll do Y for you. If you don't do X for me, I'm not going to do Y for you. That's the way relationships work in our world today. Across all bounds, not just in marriages. That's how our relationships tend to work. That is not how the marriage relationship is intended to work. It is to be a selfless love. A love that looks like Jesus' love for you and I. And to pursue this kind of model of selfish love is ungodly. It's completely contrary to this beautiful picture of covenant oneness that Jesus tells us about here in the passage. And we also shouldn't miss the part of what Jesus is also doing. It's helping us to understand that Marriages, and if you're married today, your marriage is ultimately God's doing. God's the one who brought it together and put it together. And if you believe Adrian's story about how she and I met, which I do not, by the way, (laughs) but if you believe her story about how we met, then you would know that our marriage is part of God's doing. And I could we could probably mention a Tons of other things in the middle there that are also part of how we, we, we got brought together. But if she were telling the story about how we met, she would tell about a day when I arrived back in Orlando after a very long summer working in Colorado. I flew into Savannah the previous day, drove down to Orlando that day, got settled back in my house, and then went to a friend's birthday party. I was totally wiped out. At least that's the excuse I'll give. Um, but supposedly, again, um, if you believe Adrian... Um, my fr- friend, I think, I- introduced us at the party, or we got introduced at the party, and supposedly I was a bit of a jerk to her. And yet here we are, 17 and a half years later. You see what Jesus says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together. Who's done it? Who did the work? Who brought it together? What God has put together, let no man separate. He is the ultimate authority. He is the one who invented it. Okay? 
And you know another thing, because he created it, he desires for it to be good. He desires for it to be so good, and it can be so good, but then at the same time, I also pain and I hurt for so many of you because it's not always And sometimes it can be so difficult and it can be be so hard and it can be so difficult to, to show selfish love to a selfish sinner. But yet that's what we're called to do. That's what our Savior has has done for us. We need to begin to truly believe that our marriage is God's idea. It's his idea. He has authority over it. And therefore, it's not subject to, to our whims and our passions that bounce all over the place and go to and fro. And it should have this beautiful, sanctifying effect on us. And what could be more sanctifying to us than selflessly loving another sinner? But it doesn't end there. It's meant to be a picture of something greater. And that's part, part of why Jesus protects it so. It's because it's meant to point to, to something mo- so much more beautiful. It's meant to ultimately per- point to Jesus' relationship to us, the church. It's meant to picture our union with him. In Ephesians, Paul says this, therefore, and we hear these same words, you know, it's like on repeat, quoting from Genesis 2. Therefore, man shall leave his, his, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and his church. You see, our marriages, now sometimes they may be dim pictures of it, but they are meant to be pictures of our union with Christ, of the way we are united to him in which we receive all the incredible benefits of redemption. That's what our marriages are meant to ultimately point to. That that oneness is meant to point to our union with our Savior. And we get to look forward to, to that final day that John describes in Revelation 21. What does he say? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you know who that bride is? That bride is us, the church. Those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. And on that last day, we'll be adorned for Christ, if you will, is what John is telling us. He's given us a picture. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, what, what, what is true? What, because of this union that we have with him, this union that, that, that marriage points us to, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with him as their God. Our marriages point to this beauty, the beauty that is to be our union with our great an awesome God, the one who has done everything for us. So we've heard all of this this morning. We've heard a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be. Can we this morning commit? Commit to pursuing God's view of marriage, not our own. Can we follow that, that call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him even 
in our relationships and even when it's difficult and even when it doesn't match what we want at the moment. Even when it runs contrary to our desires to live like kings and queens in our own kingdom. Can we commit to follow him? Now, since we've heard much about the messiness, we, we all live, and we need to understand, we all live in a messy world today. And our relationships are messy. In that context, I want to share, I want to share a story with you about Ruth Graham. And we'll close with this. Um, Ruth Graham, of course, the daughter of Billy Graham. I want to read to you what she said at um, her dad's funeral. She said, after 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot of wrong. The rug was pulled out for me. My family, in this context, thought it would be good for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere. And so I decided to live near my older sister and her family near a good church. And the pastor of the church introduced me to a handsome widower. And we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him. But I thought, <laughs> you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know. They couldn't tell me what to do. I, I knew it was best for my life, she says. My mother called me from Seattle. My dad called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. But they'd never been a single parent. They'd never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man. This man on New Year's Eve. Within 24 hours, I knew that I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day's drive. Questions swirled through my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. Let me tell you, and you women will understand, she said, uh, you don't want to embarrass your father, and you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain, and, and as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded that last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me, and he said, welcome home. There was no shame. There was no blame. There was no condemnation. Just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God. But he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin and our brokenness, our failure and our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you. You see, we can come to him this morning with our selfishness in our marriages, our, our selfishness in all the relationships of our life. We, we, we can come to him with biblical divorces that we, we, we still struggle with and, and we still hate that we were a part of. We can come to him even in the midst of, of divorces that may not have been in biblical and, and we can bring the mess to him. We can come to him in all of those places 
all of those places where we, we try to enthrone ourselves and fail to follow Him, the true King. And if we come to Him, regardless of our situation, regardless of, of where we're coming from, He says to us, welcome home. Do you believe it this morning? He bids us all, wherever we're at in our life, regardless of our relationships, He bids all of us. And He says, come and follow me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Sometimes your words are difficult. Sometimes they're hard for us to hear. But you know what we need. And you know what is best for us. Oh, would you help us to learn to trust you? Would you help us to learn to follow Jesus in all of our life and all of our relationships. I pray for those in here this morning who are hurting. Oh, would you bring comfort to them? Would you help us as a church to know how to love them well? To be the arms of the Father hugging your child, saying, welcome home. Would you help each of us where we're at? the selfishness that flows so freely through our veins. Oh, would you help us to learn the selfless love of our Savior? We need you. We need you this morning. We thank you that we have Jesus, that in him all of this messiness of our life all of the sin is washed away if we only believe in him. Oh, would you help us to believe this morning? We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.